first of all, I appreciate you like having this conversation and much less like hosting someone that you, you probably don't agree with on everything. Um, well, Sam invited you. To I, <laughs> I was like, Casey, you're probably going to hate me for this, but uh, awesome. I want to talk to this guy. I told him about it after the, it was confirmed. So <laughs> at some point, I'll, I'll invite like Sean Hannity's son on here and Sam will have to sweat it out. Well, I hope he'll invite you back. I think that could be a, you know, a good time. Welcome to Growing Up Christian. I'm Casey. And I'm Sam. And uh, <laughs> I've been, okay, so the other day, I've been sitting on this story for a minute because I feel like this is something, uh, I don't know, it just pulled a lot of strings in my brain when it happened. <laughs> but, uh, so I, I've been getting my hair cut at this place in Wichita. Um, I've decided that I can afford to pay a little more for people who have seen like a modern haircut before. Yeah. Right. I, that Getting a haircut and finding the right place was like a real struggle for me. He, I mean, I having I had dreads for like nine years and I didn't get a haircut for at least 10. And then after getting, after getting a haircut, I was like, after cutting them off, it was like after my son was born, I was like, what am I supposed to even, what do I do? Like, I went from having an emo swoop to growing my hair out and getting dreadlocks. So like, I didn't know how to have an actual grown up haircut. <laughs> Dude, you just like so many years where your hair was your personality too. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you have no idea how difficult of a time this still is for me, Casey. I still like have panic attacks over haircuts. I'm like, it's not right. It's not what I wanted. Hence becoming a hat guy. <laughs> Dude, as problematic as they were, you looked really good in dreadlocks. Yeah, I miss them. I would redo them too, man. I would redo them in two seconds if uh, my wife wouldn't divorce me and my my company wouldn't consider why they hired me in the first place. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what's the difference, right? You just smell like a hay barn all the time. That's it. They weren't. They were. <laughs> they weren't that bad, but they did get. Dude, when I cut them, I should post the pictures on the Instagram. When I cut them off, like the dread rot, which is what they call it, when like all the shit builds up inside of them, it looks pretty fucked up. I should uh, post those oh on my Instagram. Oh, God. I'm not, so I'm not familiar at all with that. What do you got, like termites or something living in there? Well, I mean, all your dead skin cells, everything literally like all your dead hair, like you, your hair never leaks. Well, the, the dead hair is fine because they make wigs out of other people's hair. Like nothing happens to your hair. Right. Hair apparently stays hair forever. It doesn't decompose when your body does. That's why you see those like skeletons with like the creepy ass hair coming out. Like they still have like their head, like their uh, scalps on and shit. Um, but yeah, it's like, you know, your hair grease and your dead skin cells like that literally just builds up inside of them. It's like when a tree cracks and falls over and you look inside and it's just like straight up mush in the middle yeah. and you just didn't know it <laughs> yeah that, that's basically that that's basically dreadlock yeah you got a gooey uh uh a soft candy core yeah <laughs> but anyway you know, okay so, so you get your hair you, you finally start paying big boy dollars for a haircut is yeah. this a salon or a barber no it's like a salon it's uh and it's like 
the cost of your haircut is inversely related to the age of the person cutting the hair. It's like the exact opposite of every other industry. Like the younger they are, the more you're going to pay for the haircut. I suppose yeah. unless you hit like, unless you're one of those people that goes to the, the Paul Mitchell school and lets them just like hack away at you. Yeah. Like Edward we have Scissor Rob Roy's. <laughs> you have Rob Roy down there? No. <laughs> so Paul Mitchell, Rob Roy, apparently they name these hair schools after just people with generic ass names. The whitest dude. <laughs> so I'm, I would, I, been going to this place and uh it's like takes a little longer you know you, you end up in the chair for longer and then they like shampoo you out and stuff like that but uh i got to talking to this young girl who's cutting my hair and just like asking her some basic questions you know and well what's uh so uh where's is your are you from here uh yeah originally okay what about your what about your fiance and she's like well it's it's not my fiance. Well, it's kind of my fiance. Um, I think it's my fiance as of last night. I'm like, okay. <laughs> what do you mean? She's like, well, we'll probably be married within the year. I was like, I got gotcha. you. How? What? What's go? How did that happen? She's like, well, it came up in conversation last night. Like he told me that my my ring would be here soon, and he asked me if I wanted him to ask me sooner or or like wait a little while and ask me after a while like well first red flag <laughs> right there like you don't get to like you don't get to to probe you gotta just you gotta shoot your shot boy you know yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it was funny because it was like the more questions i start asking oh what's your what's your fiance do uh he's a children's pastor Oh, okay. Okay. Like where at? And she's like, well, it's at a church plant in downtown Wichita. Nice church plant. She's like, yeah, he's not, he's not full time. He's, uh, you know, a bank teller, but he's eventually, he hopes that they're going to start paying him to do it soon. And the more she told me about this church, it sounds like it's kind of a cool place. They're meeting in like a communal space and you know, it's just, uh, it's very community focused. Like they're trying to like do a bunch of stuff in the community and like serve local people, which I think yeah. sounds great. It made you almost consider going back to church. Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I'm like, so with, how long have you guys been together? And she says five months. Hey, it's like, Oh, I've read this story before. Like she goes, well, but we were, you know, we were like aware of each other on social media and stuff beforehand. That counts. Yeah, pretty that much. That counts for like, what? I mean, at least another five months. This is all like how I started out, you know? I like, I like literally saw April on campus and thought she was good looking. And so I just messaged her. I was like, hey, you should uh, check out my band sometime. Ooh. That's <laughs> <laughs> terrible. <laughs> nice move. It worked, but I mean, it shouldn't have. You should be single and sad right now. Right. Yeah. But you so. know what? Don't don't fix what's not broken. Yeah. <laughs> but uh so they started basically like met in person like I'm assuming it sounded like 6 months ago. Started dating 5 months ago, talking about marriage now. And Oof. you know, it's one of those things where it's like people do that and they're fine and like uh you know, I certainly wouldn't presume to judge 
this girl or her fiance or their situation. And I wish them all the best, but it was just like, there was so many of the things that like she said while telling me about this, that I was like, Oh yeah, I, I thought that, or I heard that before or something, you know, like she says, uh, well, you know, I just feel like I, I, you know, matured a lot faster than a lot of my friends. Oh my God. The amount of times I heard that from everyone who was getting married. Okay. From someone who got married at a young, I love, we, we will talk about this all day. We were those people too. We were. (laughs) (laughs) Now I, to some degree will stand by the fact that I, I was, I don't know if mature is the right word, uh, but I had, I was er, more ready for that stage of life at an early age. I don't think mature is the right word, but I was like, I was just a, I don't know. I wasn't interested in like, we, we weren't both of us. Like we, we weren't party guys. We had like a small group of friends that we were close with. Like we weren't, not a lot was like changing for us. And we weren't always looking for like the next best thing. Oh, I don't know. Maybe this person, someone else will come along. Like we were just like, easy go i don't know i just I, I shouldn't speak for you but i was just not interested in like but i don't know if that's maturity i feel that's like what that's, i'm saying i'm not saying i was more mature i'm saying my demeanor in general baseline personality that i have no control over was more ready for that phase of life at that time than like than peers i feel like i was less mature than most of the people around me I just didn't like me getting married. I wasn't giving up anything that I wanted and was like, I wasn't sacrificing uh, the life that I had hoped for or wanted so that I could marry April, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like I wanted to marry April, but like I was a child and she was a child and we were uh, only equipped to make each other miserable over time <laughs> <laughs> and we did fine we're fine but uh yeah there was just like so many little things that she said i'm like oh man this is like talking to 22 year old me yeah <laughs> you know? man i also want to point out how you were the one probing for conversation from the person cutting your hair and it's supposed to be the other way around you should well, everybody it's... wants to talk about themselves like if you ask a question uh, shortly soon after people are going to start talking about themselves. Yeah, that's true. I, I think the hardest part about getting a haircut for me is when people try to talk to me, I'm like, I just would rather, I don't really want to do this. I want you to cut my hair. I want to say that looks good or a little bit off, a little bit shorter right there. And then I want to pay you and move on. Like I, I know some people have like connections with their barber and they like that. I don't, I don't care about that at all. And the, the small talk of like, so what do you, you got hobbies? It's like, yeah, I got hobbies. Yeah. So what do you, if I wanted to talk about them, I would have started talking about them. <laughs> I feel like I can handle the, the, the haircut place. I don't like it when the, dentist tries to talk to me like they've oh got my, my god fi- they've got their fingers in my mouth and they're asking me questions and i'm like uh-huh. like yeah even yes or no questions like what's the point like i literally fell asleep in the dentist chair getting a filling the other day i almost i want to point out that the dentist isn't 
Well, the dentist is doing fillings. If you're getting your teeth cleaned, it's it's a hygienist. Wow. Oh. Come on. Casey. All right. Well, sorry. Uh, I get my my mother-in-law is a hygienist, so she cleans my teeth. So I have to put a, I have to do the whole like her talking to me while cleaning my teeth and just be like her 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 and it's like and and then now it's your mother-in-law. Imagine that. Isn't and that every weird? time every time after you swish and spit, you're like, you know, you're not a dentist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be that would be a little uncomfortable, I guess. It's not anymore. It's just like that's just that you know it's it's like it is weird though because it's like outside it's like i obviously i live right down the street from my mother-in-law so like i see my wife's family all the time and um but it's also weird because i forget to go like you're supposed to go like what twice a year or some shit yeah uh i'll definitely go over a year and then go in and it's like then i have to like it's like my mother-in-law knows when I'm not going because she's the hygienist who cleans my teeth. So it's like super weird when you go. It's like normally like haven't been in here in a while. And then it's just like having that conversation with your mother-in-law is like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dude, you know what I hate? It's like going to places where you are at a disadvantage in the discussion and then having them try to like upsell you stuff. Like the the vet is really bad about that. Oh my God. And then yeah, the other, like these the dentist i've been to the dentist like three times in the past year for different things and they're like and we can fill two cavities do you want three we- you have three cavities four well like the first time i went in in the past year they're like hey uh just so you know we're seeing some signs that like you grind your teeth and you know that can be really d- bad for your teeth over time and we would really like to fit you for a night guard and like get you fitted for that and it's you know it's 800 bucks for the fitting and stuff like that but you know this is something that would really be a good idea for you and i'm like I don't want, mm, I don't want that. I do yeah. not want to have to sleep with that thing in. I would rather just pretend this problem didn't exist, you know? And and the whole time I'm kind of thinking in the back of my head, like no one's ever mentioned this to me before. So I told them like, I didn't really want to, I wasn't going to do it. I've been back twice and they haven't said a thing about me grinding my teeth or anything like that. And maybe I just got a check mark next to my name is like, Oh, this guy's cheap and he doesn't buy night guards. But (laughs) I feel like if it was really important, they would tell me on a regular basis, like, hey, just so you know, uh, you're grinding your teeth down to the nub. Yeah. Yeah. I that's always uh, I'm always skeptical of those kinds of solutions when they're like, we're seeing signs of it's like I'm either doing it or I'm not. Okay, you your job is to look at my mouth and know if there's a problem, if you're just like making guesses based on a couple of things like that, that that's called data so next time i come in collect more of that and then we'll see if i need this mouth guard a little bit later on i'm just gonna make my own by like melting down jolly ranchers you know perfect i can't see anything go wrong with that <laughs> do you remember when you were a kid and they had all those i don't even know if they still have them but they had all those like weird candies that no one ever bought next to the cash register they'd have like candy toothpaste that had like a little brush with it and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you squirt like that weird ca- like candy gel out yeah yeah or just like straight up sour like uh uh drops that you just put in your mouth oh yeah man i remember those it just burn a hole in your sour tongue. stuff like that. that was were awful anything sour like that just like like sour warheads made it felt like somebody sandpapered the fuck out of your tongue it was awful <laughs> 
It felt awful. I hated anything sour. Or did you, did you ever get those like giant ass, uh, like the uh, jawbreakers? Like they would. They were I don't like know the if size I of ever a... did. I feel okay. like that's one candy that like I have no experience with. that, and I have one experience with uh, gumdrops. I I threw a <laughs> threw them up. <laughs> <laughs> naturally but these these jawbreakers are so big like you have to like you just lick them like you just hold like it's like holding like a a cue ball and just licking it <laughs> like a pervert and you do it so like long a pervert. <laughs> you you do it so long that like all the color is gone right and then you as you're licking it you realize it's just getting red you're like, what the fuck? And then you realize it's because your tongue's bleeding all over the thing. <laughs> <laughs> they were terrible. You got one of those uh, big, you know, sugary gonads that makes my mouth bleed, please. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Dude, so are you are you fully vaccinated now? Mm hmm. I am. I can now rejoin the public without any worry except for i love it because like you know i'm fully vaccinated without the a lot of the perks of being fully vaccinated right because nobody knows like if you are so like you still wear a mask so you don't look like a dickhead i do other people don't care about looking like a dickhead and i have seen a lot of those people uh literally i swear the day after like the cdc was like you don't have to, if you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear masks. Everyone who wasn't vaccinated was like, we're not going to find out now. And I'm, I go to like, just the other day, I went to like a, a gas station, go inside to get like, I get gas station, iced coffee, Cumbies. We got Cumbies in New England. Cumbies is the best dollar iced coffees. Anyway, I, you go in, I'm like, there's up until that point, I, I would generally, no matter what people's political leanings, you would. And you could you can know people's political leanings without talking to them because they're probably wearing like a an American flag shirt with a bald eagle like silhouette on it and shit like that. Like there's plenty of ways to know where I live, what people's political leanings are without ever having a conversation with them. And they would even wear masks. And then all of a sudden, like that switch flipped. And it, now we're in this like, don't ask, don't tell policy of being vaccinated, I guess. And they're just walking around without masks, getting coffee, coughing on your cups, sneezing on the sugar cute. It's like the shit, like the table with all the everything on it. It's like the creamer, sugar. It's like, they're just like, <coughs> it's like, God, I don't even care if I'm vaccinated. I'm getting COVID. But Anyway, fully vaccinated. Uh, interesting story, though. While I was in, I was like, I had to stand in line to get my first shot. And nobody there knew how a line worked. So I stood there for longer than I needed to before realizing that the people standing in front of me didn't know why they were standing in line. <laughs> I was there for like 40 <laughs> minutes. That's, that's the last time I ever just get in a line because I see it formed and somebody tells me what it's for. I'll go check that shit out for myself for the rest of my life. Uh, but I'm, So I'm standing in line. Uh, I'm like two people from getting inside the store. So I'm pretty close to the front door where, where the handicap parking spots are. And there's a, it looks like a delivery van, like you're, you know, your 15 passenger type, all white, no windows on the sides kind of deal delivery van. 
and it's idling and it's pulled into a parking spot that's right next to the handicap spot. But the back of the van is like a foot, maybe a foot over the line on the back. And this woman comes marching up beside me and turns into the parking lot and pounds on the guy's door. And she's like, are you handicapped? And he's like, what? She's like, are you fucking handicapped? He's like, uh, just rolls his window up. She's like, you shouldn't be parked here. My 90 year old mother had to walk into this, into the CVS because you, because assholes like you are parked where they shouldn't be. And she's really losing her shit. So he just rolls his window up, throws it in reverse, backs out because that's what a normal person does. And had he known and had that conversation happened ahead of time, he would have just backed out. Like she could have just like, pulled in next to him and been like, excuse me, you're over the line. And he would have moved and then she could have parked and her 90 year old mother wouldn't have had to walk a mile and a half uphill in the snow to get to a fucking CVS. Yes, so he wasn't parked in the handicap spot. He no. was a crappy parker. Yes, exactly. And he was idling. He was clearly waiting for something. Like it's not like he left his vehicle. So anyway, after trying to lecture him, she turns around and trips over the shit that like stops your car from rolling forward in a parking spot and just eats shit on the pavement in front of everybody <laughs> just instant karma oh yeah and she, you could i mean it i felt the wind of her fall it was just she collapsed in front of me i was a foot and a half away from her and you like do this whole like you try to put your arms out but within a like a pretty short period of time like in between her falling you put your arms out and you're like i feel like if i catch her i'm just going to make this worse and i don't know if i could have caught her but that was what made me scared so you just kicked her away yeah i just was like (laughs) i just you just watch it like i don't think i was really able to react as much as i was thinking about it like my arms weren't moving it wasn't an involuntary reaction but i'm like i probably could have stopped that and then my my i mean she's mad at this guy in the van like if i touched her she would have blamed her fall on me, but then she just gets up and turns around and throws up her middle fingers at the, the guy in the van and starts like yelling at him. She's like, look what you just made me do you asshole. And then like stomps her way into the, the store and everyone's just staring. And there's like, there's at least 10 people outside just quietly standing by while that whole thing happens. It was weird. <laughs> oh man. Dude, that is that is the worst. Like that's one of the few times I've ever like uh like gotten like snotty with somebody in public is because they were doing something like that. Because like yeah, yeah, like that's there's a there's a way to handle that situation, right? The guy parked poorly. You have a handicapped mother. I'm assuming she was with her. She wasn't just talking about it, right? Yeah, because she left. She had to like leave and everyone was still there watching her leave. And she did come out like she pulled the car up and then her her mother got in the car. Her mother was old. Like she really shouldn't have been walking that far to get in. But there was clearly a way to have handled that that didn't require like why not? Why not make that scene or if you're going to make that scene, why not like have that conversation with a person before driving to the opposite end of the parking lot and making your mother walk in. Like, right. You could have just pulled Almost up next like, to the dude and been like, Hey, I can't fit. And he would have just moved. I, it was weird, man. 
like, look, mom, you got to walk because I've got a point to make. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm using you as credentials so I can freak out right now. Yeah. <laughs> so that was like, there's, I don't know. I have, I have like very little sympathy for people who, who do that sort of thing to other people in almost any context, you know, like everybody's like, Hey, don't talk like that to your waiter or waitress or whatever. But yeah, yeah. There's so many situations where people are like, they, you can see there's like a gleam in their eye where they're like, I have the justification to act like a total jerk right now. And I'm going to do it and I'm going to enjoy it, you know? And like, I just don't, just don't do that. Like, I, I just don't understand why people do that. But one time, uh, so I traveled for my company all over the U.S. and a little bit internationally, not much, um, for like three years. And yep. you just end up stuck in airports. Like you're going, <laughs> you travel enough. If you fly, you know, six times a month, you're going to get stuck once in a while. Things are going to happen. You're going to get delayed. And like, there's two kinds of people. There's the vast majority of people that are upset, but they just kind of deal with it. And then there's yeah. the people who are like, maybe if I yell enough, I'll get faster. Maybe they'll charter me a private plane to take me to <laughs> Dallas or whatever. And so there was this this one trip where I was I was coming back from New Orleans and I had to go to Atlanta and then go back to Wichita because that's how flights work here. <laughs> so I uh, I get to Atlanta just normal everything's fine and delta got hacked it was like a big ordeal they shut down flights all over the country for i don't know how long long time anyways you're stuck and there's so many things that it, that it interferes with on the on the airport side of things that it's just they don't have any control over you know so we wait around for like 6 hours um, the plane that we were supposed to fly on didn't, wasn't getting there. So they had to get us a different plane. By the time they got us the plane, the pilots that we had, they're, uh, they're too close to their hourly limit to make the flight. So just one thing after another. So we end up getting on the plane. It was supposed to leave at like 6 PM and it's like midnight now. And we're about to make our three hour, three and a half hour flight to, uh, where or I guess whatever it was. Anyways, we f get on the plane. We wait on the tarmac for like, it was a long time. I remember I watched an entire movie while we were waiting on the tarmac. Oh my God. That's so frustrating though. To yeah. have to just sit there that long. It was like Batman, the killing joke. I don't remember <laughs> much about it, but anyways, we take off. Finally, we fly like an hour and there's something wrong with the plane. So oh, come on. they have to turn us around and take us back to Atlanta. No. <laughs> yeah. It was, That's so terrible. It was awful. It was like the worst case scenario. It was like an overnight ordeal, you know, but, but everyone on the plane thinks it's only happening to them and nobody else on the plane. <laughs> oh yeah. And there's this couple, it's like middle-aged couple and immediately like they're making it clear that they are going to get a special deal out of this and and it's going to include a, an apology from the CEO of Delta. Oh and, my god. I mean literally just freaking out on the plane. Then we get off the plane. Everybody has to just, you know, uh deboard where there's 250 people standing there that just got off of this plane. Everybody's exhausted and they're just waiting to hear what they're going to 
do for us, right? And this couple is standing at the desk and they are just screaming at the, at the girl at the desk. And she's just a salaried airport employee just there trying to figure it out like everybody else, you know? Right. And this couple is just lambasting her. I mean, going to town on her, making a scene. And then the pilots and the flight attendants, you know, they're up against their hours, so they have to leave. And so they come out of the plane and they run to the, the gate and yell at the pilots and the flight attendants as they're getting off the plane. You told us we would be in blah, 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 by now. And, blah, you know, just screaming at them and stuff. Oh, my God. And so we're waiting around and they're standing in the back, just kind of like muttering to themselves really loud for the whole crowd to hear. You know, it's like the people who are trying to rally the crowd with them. Yeah. Like they're they're kind of like elbowing everybody around. I'm like, this is crazy. I mean, have you ever seen such a thing? And the, uh, this, this lady came down to like announce what was going on. And these people keep screaming over us. And, uh, and finally, like they were standing right behind me and I, 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 I'm trying to remember what I said. I had a really good line, (laughs) but I was just like, I was like, why don't you shut up, you prick? We're all waiting. <laughs> shut your mouth. <laughs> it's like the one time I've ever I've ever yelled at someone. And yeah. it was like it caught them by surprise so much that they just kind of like, you know, and they were still obnoxious, but they didn't scream at anyone from there forward. And it felt like so good. Like <laughs> all the times I didn't try in high school basketball, it was like, man, this is what it must have felt like. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I don't ever have it in me to to call people out. I think I'm scared for my personal safety or something. Like you have to. I don't know. I I mean, you get to a tipping point, obviously, if it's going on for a long time. But to to think about just trying to call somebody out for being a dick like that for that long. I mean, maybe maybe after like all that time and the flight and everything just going wrong for that many hours. Like I'm surprised everyone there didn't just like turn in on them and cannibalize them. (laughs) Right. Just, just stomp them to death. Right. In the tarmac. Yeah. It was like, it was bad, but like, that's a good instinct to have. Like, I, I don't know. You know, we were, we were having a conversation this week about uh, a person that was, everybody knows, especially if you're a guy, like, you've got that guy in your life that always wants to tell you about the last time they got in a fight. Oh yeah. And I despise, I hate it so much when a grown man starts telling me a fight story. I just want to like walk off in the middle of it. Like, yeah. shut <laughs> up. like what is wrong with you? Like if you're getting in fist fights as a grown man, like you're doing it wrong. All of yeah. it. It's so you're ridiculous. Literally, yeah. I know it, it's strange when you hear people and, that, and there's always a pride in it. Like, like that's cool. Like you beat, you beat someone up. I don't know. I don't think this, this isn't uh, MMA. Like you don't get a trophy. You might get a, I don't know, criminal charge possibly, and but you could really hurt somebody, you yeah, know, like somebody I, I, falls never in their head. I, mean, I, I maybe because I'm the kind of person who would have lost every fight they could possibly get into. 
but I so maybe that has something to do with the fact the with why I've never understood the mentality of people who who get in fights like that if for your reaction to be that even like when you're young and like usually there's alcohol involved with most fights I feel like like I don't if there isn't, then those are the kind of people you need to be probably scared of, <laughs> like really scared of. If someone's going to kick your ass without like any alcohol in their system, like, oof, like, I don't know. I, that, that's scary. But don't get like, around college that fights, bar fights. Like, man, I just can't even ever imagine getting into one of those. I would have backed down so quick. And the second anyone came out, I was just like, oh, you want to. You if, if when you think of the type of person who says whose response to you want to fight is to throw a punch. Like I, there's something not, there's something that's like in your brain that just like turns off, like you to not be able to like consider the consequences of that. It's really interesting to me. I don't. Yeah. It's hard to know, like in those situations and like fighting aside, just like intervening in a situation or like speaking up when someone's doing something like, I don't know. There's certain circumstances where you should, right? Of course. Like, uh, <clears throat> somebody, somebody recently, uh, I think it was, what is it? Talk, talk purity to me. She was talking about, uh, being at like the drugstore and someone just like bothering her, like some creepy old dude, just bothering her. And like, do you intervene oh, yeah. in that situation? I mean, you should, right. Verbally. So I don't know. It's hard. I don't feel like I've been in very many situations though, where it was bad enough that like, it was like my duty to stand in and say something. I just don't think that you do end up in many of those, but if it happens, I guess, you know, that's what you need to do. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, the amount of, whenever a fight breaks out or you see something wild, there's always like a dozen people standing around videotaping the whole thing. And they're just, but no one's going to get involved. Like that's just going to post that shit on youtube and try to go viral <laughs> try to make some money off this i'm not fighting anybody but i i i won't rule out the possibility of berating someone yeah you know, if they really have it coming yeah <laughs> oh, man all right so we're kind of uh i guess we're at that point where we should uh introduce our guest coming up <laughs> probably <laughs> so our guest Coming up today, as the title of the show implies, is Shane Claiborne. If you are not familiar with Shane Claiborne, he is an author. He is an activist. Uh, some of his books include The Irresistible Revolution, uh, Jesus for President, and his most reading, his most recent one, which is kind of the which is kind of the meat of what we get into in the conversation. He, he is a book called Beating Guns, where he talks about. Um, I, I guess just the gun, I mean, really gun violence in, in the United States and, and ways to curb it and, you know, where we're at as a culture, uh, as a, as a gun culture or as a, um, as a culture that's having a very difficult time finding a way to have productive conversations about gun violence and how to mitigate it. So uh, I think this is a great conversation that we're not, it's, you know, this might be one of the, few we've had at this point where we're not all on the same page here um there's some differences of opinion on what this looks like and not they're not they're not so vast but um you know casey 
and I don't necessarily agree all the way on this, but there's a lot of overlap. So I, I, I like this conversation. It's not an easy one to have, but I think just the fact that people who have differences of opinion can get together and have this conversation is what we want to see more of in, in our worlds uh, in even in our own lives, you know, it's not easy to have these conversations with maybe family or friends that, you know, disagree. So I, I appreciate it. I thought it was not only fun, but a good exercise and just having conversations that might not be easy. So, yeah. Yeah. For, uh, I mean, I guess we get into it in the episode, but I have been a gun enthusiast for, you know, most of my life. And, uh, I feel like there's a bunch of people in the audience that, that are gun enthusiasts and a lot of people who are not. I think either way, um, what we're trying to do, uh, both in this podcast and another one that we just did a guest spot on, is uh, come together on the issues, the things that we think we've got common ground on. You know, we may not agree on exactly the, you know, the minutia of what guns should be legal and which ones shouldn't and all of that stuff. Sometimes Sam try to tread on me and I'm like, don't, yeah. you know? <laughs> no step on snick. But, uh, you know, I think that there's a lot of, of common sense stuff that we can come together on. And you know what, it's not going to fix every problem out there and there's still going to be um, loopholes and stuff like that. But the idea that like any sort of action is, is of negative consequence to, uh, to gun owners, I think is, is ridiculous. Um, you know, it's, it's in everyone's best interest to try to find a way to curb some of the stuff that's been going on, whether it's, you know, um, mass shootings or just, you know, like the, uh, more traditional gun violence and stuff. If you're a gun enthusiast, like think of it this way, those things are the greatest threat to guns ownership. You know, that's, that's what I, I feel like I've tried to like communicate to some of the people that I know that are very, very wary of any discussion of these topics is like, if you are really interested in protecting gun rights, quote unquote, whatever that means to you, you know, like mass shootings and and violence and stuff like that that's the greatest threat you know anything that us as as law abiding people gun owners or not can do to help curb some of that even if it doesn't fix every little thing about it i th- i think it's in all of our best interests long term for us to do that so um i did uh you know hey i just want you guys to know i did make my best effort to read Shane's book I made it through about 60% of it. So it's good. I mean, getting, getting through 60% of a book for an interview is impressive, Casey. It's exponentially better than my record previously. You know, <laughs> I'm not reading the Bible though. So, <sighs> well, luckily we're not interviewing God about that. So <laughs> anyways, Shane's a great dude. We don't, like I said, we don't agree on everything, but uh, just a really gracious uh, compassionate guy with the best of motivations and uh, just was just a really good dude to talk to. So yeah, um, if this is an uncomfortable conversation for you as a as a gun owner or something, I, look just I just stick with it and uh, and just you know just hear him out and some of his ideas on these things. And I think that uh, 
but that's ultimately like where we need to go with things is uh, just a yeah. better, more open conversation. So enjoy our talk with Shane Claiborne. Hey, everybody, we're back with our guest, Shane. Shane, thanks so much for hanging out with us. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you, fellas. I'm glad to have a conversation. Yeah. So, Shane, you know, just for our listeners who might not be familiar with you or your work, um, you know, I I was introduced to it when I was in college with um, your book, The Irresistible Revolution. And that was really um, uh, pretty foundational to me as I was trying to figure out what I thought being a Christian meant and, and things like that. So I, I, I find your story fascinating. I think a lot of people would, I just wouldn't, I, I would like you to just kind of give a quick backdrop into, you know, who you are and how you kind of got into the, the work that you're doing uh, today, you know, with the simple way and, and things like that, like how you drifted into a, a line of work that's not entirely common. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I grew up down South. That's why I got the, you know, the, the nice Southern draw going and I'm, uh, <laughs> Grew up in Tennessee, fell in love with Jesus down here. Uh, I grew up in the Methodist United Methodist Church, and then I, I got a little bored with it and dived. In, I dove into the Pentecostal thing, and I like that, you know. And I've kind of been spitting out the bones all along the way, but taking what I could, and it's shaped me, you know. And it's a little town I grew up in down here in Tennessee, so um, I always had this sort of curiosity and and even kind of a longing to see the world bigger than that, you know? So I went to school up in Philly, a little college, Eastern University. And that's where I studied. I I like how Carl Barth said, we need to read the Bible in one hand, but we need to read the newspaper in the other, right? So that our faith doesn't just become a ticket into heaven and an excuse to ignore the world that we live in right now. So I I really love studying the Bible and studying sociology in college. But, um, I mean, really, the the life changing moment for me was when we were in undergrad. I was uh, uh, studying there in in the suburbs of Philly, and we heard about a group of homeless families that had moved into an abandoned Catholic church building. And these are literally moms and dads on the waiting list for housing. Um, and as we read the newspaper article about it, it said that they were given an eviction notice by the Catholic Church, and if they weren't out within forty eight hours, they could be arrested. <laughs> and that's one of those things, like, man, something about that just doesn't feel right, you know? And so it really yeah. uh, organized a student solidarity movement. And I was, uh, you know, a part of that. We, we basically moved in as much as we could in solidarity with those families. And that standoff didn't just last 48 hours. It lasted for months and months. Many of them got housing. And out of that, we started our community man, this is back, this is 25 years ago. So how about that? And, uh, we, you know, we, we, uh, moved into that same neighborhood and we started the simple way, the community I've been a part of for the last 25 years, um, which is really inspired by these families, but also inspired by the early church in the book of Acts, where it says, uh, you know, that, that the early Christians shared everything they had. No one claimed any of their possessions were their own. And, you know, they live the gospel out of their their homes. And so we we're really drawn to that. So we started this little village and we've got community gardens, murals, all kinds of stuff, you know, going in the neighborhood, still taking abandoned houses and fixing them up. And uh, um, and then, you know, out of living there, a lot of my other the, the sort of fire in my bones on some of these other issues uh, surfaced out of um, 
seeing too many kids killed on our street corners, you know, and, and wanting to do something about gun violence. Um, but not just that. I mean, we have um, a whole movement around welcoming immigrants in Philadelphia we've been a part of. We've been trying to fight for restorative justice and alternatives to the death penalty. And all that's fueled by my faith, but it's also fueled by my proximity. You know, that like the, the neighborhood that I'm living in, um, a lot of these issues have names and faces. They're not just uh, ideologies, you know? Yeah. It, it seems like the past four years have probably made a little bit more work for you in terms of like conversations being had um, about whether, I mean, it seems like everything that you're working for has been, uh, you know, those are the conversations that have been prominent in the news over the past four years, even though they were always issues, um, certain things brought to light other, you know, where we really stand and where things have been and where they're going and where we want them to go in regards to immigration, gun violence, the death penalty, all of those have been really prominent conversations. Absolutely, dude. I mean, and some of these are not partisan, you know, I mean, we're right now uh, having deep conversations with the current administration under Biden because his refugee numbers of welcoming refugees are lower than Trump's uh, they're the yeah. his historic lows, you know, lower than any modern presidency. And so we're trying to, you know, to me, welcoming immigrants, welcoming refugees is not a Republican thing or a Democrat thing. It's a Jesus thing. You know, Jesus said, when you welcome the stranger, you welcome me. So, you know, that that's and same with the death penalty. You know, um, Joe Biden used to be for the death penalty. Now he's come out against it. So I'm optimistic that he can make some changes on that. But it's a lot of this is state by state, too. So it's not just all. Change doesn't happen from the top down. It really comes from the bottom up. So we've been building momentum. But, you know, the Trump, these Trump years have been devastating um, because I think, you know, what, what I've been saying is Trump didn't change America. He revealed America. And I think the same is true of the the evangelical church, especially, you know, white evangelicalism. He didn't change it. He he uh, he he really uh, revealed it to us. And, um, you know, I, I remember when Trump was first elected, uh, my wife was asking her third graders, she's, she's a, uh, you know, educator, and she was asking her third grade students, what do, what do you think of? What, what, are, what do you, how are you processing this? And the kids said, these are some of the real things that they said. Are we going to be slaves again? Is my family going to have to move back to Puerto Rico? Is my friend Muhammad, who's Muslim, going to be allowed to stay in this country? So I think that that was initially what we heard and saw. And so, you know, over the years, we've been trying to respond to that. But I think it's, it's also the, the, the kind of meshing of, of Christianity with uh, the, the ideologies and rhetoric of Trump that's been so disturbing. So, um, yeah, I'm not partisan. Yeah. I, wrote, I wrote a book called Jesus for President that's challenging where we put our hope and our faith. Um, and so I, but I, I, I find it just absolutely uh, baffling that many of my fellow evangelicals have kind of forfeited any credibility to try to defend things that are not only indefensible, but they're very anti-Christian, anti-Christ-like. On the, on your refugee pro project, do you, uh, like where are a lot of the refugees coming from right now that you guys are lobbying for? Well, there, there, there's folks from all over, you know, there, there's folks that are already here. You know, I think our situation with dreamers, young people whose parents came here, many of them have never even lived in the countries that their parents came from. They were, you know, born here, brought here really early on and don't even speak the language that some of their, their, their countries of origin speak. So, 
you know, I think that, that that that's one of those that we just need a path to citizenship, you know, for folks like that. I've got friends from El Salvador. I've got friends from Honduras. I've got friends from Syria, you know. Um, so I think we're, we're when we think about the persecuted church overseas, sometimes we're really good at um, caring about Christians in Syria as long as they stay in Syria, <laughs> you know. But as soon as they want to come here, we're, <laughs> we're like, nope, sorry about that, you know. So I, that, I think that, that those kind of contradictions have got to change. It seems to me like... A lot of like if you look at immigration as a whole, like one of the biggest problems that we've got now is just the the shoots and ladders that you have to jump through to be a citizen, you know, in a in a legal way. It seems like a lot of times that's what nobody's talking about. And it seems to me to be the most important thing is like we need a a streamlined, easier to follow path to citizenship. Totally. You know, so People can be here in a in a legal way when we know who they are and we're not, you know, I mean, because there are, you know, human trafficking and things like that going on. Um, if we had a more rational way for people to become a part of our society, I think it would alleviate a lot of those problems, you know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't know anybody that's just saying, well, let's just throw throw open the borders, you know, and not have any process. But, but you know, that that's the question is, what does it look like to really create a path to citizenship? And refugees, you know, are one of the most vetted populations out there. So they've also already gone through multiple layers. And we're, there, there's many that we're ready just to let in because we already know that, you know, what they're escaping and their situations. Um, so... Yeah. And for me, you know, one of the big questions uh, is I, I love the scripture that says perfect love casteth out fear. And I, I think that what what's really at war in our country right now is love and fear. And uh, and, and you, you start to wonder what would America look like if our policies, whether it's immigration or guns or, you know, healthcare, like whatever, if it was driven more by love and compassion than by fear. Uh, and and I, I saw a study that the Cato Institute put out, and we mentioned this in our Beating Guns book, but um, they list about a dozen things that are more likely to kill you than an immigrant or refugee. And on that list are things like swing sets, <laughs> you know, uh, lightning. Um, <laughs> one of them, uh, a cow, a cow is more likely to kill you. And one of my favorites was the vending machine falling on you. Uh, is more likely to kill you than wow. an immigrant or refugee. But we're conditioned to fear, you know, and I think our rhetoric, especially over the last few years, has been all about fear. And um, and so, uh, we, you know, we got to choose. I think the, the fear and love are sort of like opposing magnets. They can't occupy the same space. And, and so uh, we, we really need to choose fear over, uh, choose love over fear. And another conversation that no one is having right now, uh, vending machine anchors. Yeah, there you Why go. Why can't we bolt these things down? <laughs> I'm tired of living in a country where I have to worry about a Coke machine killing me. <laughs> so Shane, one of the things I think is um, neat about you and, you know, you, you mentioned your evangelical brothers and sisters. I, I, as far as I know, you, you really still consider yourself to be evangelical and, and kind of hold that, hold that title as much as you, I don't know, I don't know necessarily to what extent, but, you know, I think some of the things that you're talking about has been a, a, one of the biggest factors in why so many people are having a hard time staying in the church when it's it's not being representative of their uh, moral intuitions and what they understood to be um, what they learned about the love of God or or the person of Jesus and things like that. And, um, you know, maybe it turns out that they 
from what they've experienced, it's hard to uh, trust that there's any power or truth to it. And they kind of keep some of the, the ideologies, but um, you know, in a more postmodern light. Uh, but, you know, you really like, I, I appreciate the way that you've kind of stayed in it and, and continue to preach to and speak to people within that fold. And even the way you talk about Jesus, it's like the, you know, that's the stuff that we heard growing up. Um, but, you know, without some of like the drifting away from the message that maybe we would have appreciated uh, in our early 20s and 30s before a lot of us kind of felt like that just didn't stick for us anymore. So, you know, yeah, I think yeah. um, so you mentioned your book, um, Beating Guns. And, um, you know, I know when you when you put that book out, um, you know, as a, I want you to speak to kind of the premise of the book, but um, and some of the work that you did on the road, because I think what you're doing there is neat. And I, I want to get into the conversation ar- around it, um, because gun control is such a difficult conversation in our, our society right now. Probably. I don't know if it's more difficult than immigrants, um, but as you stated, it's certainly killing more people than immigrants. Uh, so it's probably worth talking about. Yeah, man. And, and before we go there, I, I just want to say in response to the evangelical thing, um, I, you know, I, I can remember back, back uh, when I was in high school, you know, the DC talk song. I don't know if anybody <laughs> knows DC talk, but you know, they had that oh, song where they, they played um, Brandon Manning in the background, you know, this kind of wild, uh, like writer and speaker, but he, he, he passed away, but he said, um, he said, one of the biggest obstacles to Christ is Christians. Uh, who, you know, pronounce Jesus with our mouths, but deny him with our lives. And uh, it reminds me of the words of Gandhi when he said, uh, you know, he's asking about Christianity and he said, I love Jesus. I just wish the Christians acted more like him. So I, I think, you know, my preferred label these (laughs) days, uh, my preferred label, you know, is red letter Christians because we're organizing this movement network of Christians who want a Christianity that looks like Jesus again, you know, And, and ironically, I think, the, the 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 interesting thing is that one of the best critiques of what's gone wrong in evangelicalism is Jesus. Uh, a lot of evangelicals have taken our you know their eyes off Jesus, and then you end up talking about things Jesus didn't talk about, and you don't talk about things Jesus did talk about. And we you know I I, I think that for for a lot of folks, what they're rejecting is a version of American nationalism that's trying to camouflage itself as Christianity, but it doesn't really. Uh, look much like Jesus at all. So, you know, if it's that version of evangelicalism, I'm not interested in it at all. You know, I think it's actually a heresy. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but, but you know, <laughs> the the word evangelical, the word evangel um, means good news. And, and even though a lot of what we see in the evangelical church doesn't look like good news at all, I still keep going back to Jesus. And I think for a lot of folks, when they reject Trump evangelicalism or this kind of distorted, toxic uh, evangelicalism, it may not be the end of your faith, but it might be the beginning, you know, of something better and more robust and beautiful. So, you know, mm-hmm. what we're doing in Red Letter Christians is trying to organize folks that they, they've dedicated their lives to Jesus and justice, and they're living out kind of a better, better version of Christianity than we've seen kind of hijack the airwaves. And, you know, so, you know, I I think that all that's kind of where I find myself. um, And I still, you know, I'm in love with Jesus, uh, despite the shameful and embarrassing things that we Christians have done. (laughs) Uh, 
Yeah. yeah so, I mean, you know, looking at guns, it yeah. was one of those things where I started to see those contradictions, even in myself, um, let alone, you know, like kind of in the larger uh, evangelical church. So I, I grew up saying I'm pro-life, but I really had a very narrow scope with which I thought about that. You know, it was really on the only on the issue of abortion. And I think a lot of folks that say that they're pro-life would be more accurate to say that they're pro-birth or anti-abortion. Uh, because when you look at the other issues of life right. and death, uh, we're often on the wrong side of it. So, you know, for me, I was for the death penalty. I grew up with guns. Uh, I grew up hunting, you know, I, and I love guns. I grew up, uh, um, my dad was in the military, so I was very pro-military. Like, uh, And then I started seeing Jesus say, love your enemies. <laughs> and it became harder and harder to reconcile, yeah. uh, you know, preparing yeah. to kill that them. That throws a wrench in the works. Uh, yeah, so... Yeah, I, 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 and so I, what I'm after is just a more consistent ethic of life that's not just about single issues, but I see a lot of these as interconnected, you know, and, and, and to care about life is to say that every human being is made in the image of God. So whether it's police shootings and racial justice or it's immigration or the death penalty or gun violence, I, I just uh, I know that any time a life is crushed, we, we lose a part of God's image in the world. and. And it breaks God's heart. I so I in in preparation for this, to be honest, I've been pretty nervous about this conversation. <laughs> Sam is still in the church and is um, I would say pretty liberal. Yeah, <laughs> he's Thanks he's one say. of those wishy washy Christians like you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm out of the church and and I tend to be I I would say I'm uh, center right. For most things, but uh, you know, guns have been a big part of my upbringing and my family. You know, and I hunt a lot, and uh, you know, I I uh, fall into some of your statistics for sure on that you shared in the book. Um, It it sounds like just you know, like summarizing like some how you ended up at uh, you know just feeling strongly about these things. Like it sounds like you your community has been really heavily affected by gun violence over the years. Oh yeah, man. I mean, it's, it's almost every corner of our neighborhood that we have memorials to shootings. We've got the collective memory of those shootings. Um, and you know, eventually for me, there's just a point where I really resonate with Dr. King when he said, we're called to be the good Samaritan and lift our neighbor out of the ditch. But after you lift so many people out of the ditch, you start to say, maybe we need to rethink the whole road to Jericho. And and on this, mm. I'll say I'll say this, bro. Like I'm I'm actually really optimistic. I mean, even as I have conversations with my family who are still hunters, who still have you know shotguns and stuff, that that they're um, an overwhelming majority of gun owners want to see some some basic changes um, and are questioning. You know, want to see things like. Uh, background checks, even like the ghost guns, one of the executive orders that we're seeing now that you shouldn't be able to assemble a gun without a serial number that no one can trace and be able to use it for terrible things. You know, we need to be able to know where guns come from and we need to, um, folks that are domestic abusers, maybe they shouldn't have access to guns. If you're not on a no-fly list, maybe you should be on a no-gun list. You know, so I'm really optimistic that um, even things like assault rifles, you know, I, I, did a vigil with um, a whole group of hunters that on their shirt, it said we're hunters against assault rifles because you don't need 10 rounds to shoot a deer. And I think there's some weapons of war that are just designed Mm. to kill 
a lot of people as quickly as possible. And that's what they keep getting used for in our mass shootings. So um, I, I don't buy into this idea that if they, you know, we, we make some minor changes on guns, it, you know, they're, they're coming for everything, you know, like we're going to overturn the second amendment. Nobody's going to be able to hunt or have a, you know, shotgun to keep a coyote away from the sheep or something. I just don't think that. I think, I think what makes this conversation really difficult um, for, for me and a lot of people, you know, that are in my, my neck of the woods is like, um, you know, you talk about proximity, proximity changed a lot of your perspective about some of the things that you thought over the years, you know, uh, here, I mean, I live in Kansas, um, almost everyone I know, you know, my liberal friends and my conservative, they're all gun owners and probably somewhere between 50 and 70% of those own an AR 15 or an AK 47 or something that falls into that that category, you know, and I, I mean, I have three of those, you know, <laughs> and there's a, this, it's a, it's a tough thing to, I, I can, I can definitely understand how, um, you know, people who didn't grow up around guns or people who aren't around the type of gun owners that, that, you know, uh, like I meet and talk with on a regular basis could see us, you know, like, uh, high capacity magazines and things like that as just being, totally unnecessary and, and really only designed to, uh, to, to kill people, you know, um, AR 15s in particular. I mean, that's the one that comes up in the news a lot. That's what's been used in the, uh, mass shootings and things. Um, you know, those, those are, uh, that's a, that's a big category that encompasses a lot of different things. And I think sometimes maybe people don't, don't realize that like that AR 15 platform is used for a lot of different things. I mean, you know, short barrel, long barrel, heavy barrel, uh, you know, folding stocks, like they use them for coyote hunting and pig hunting and they come in all different calibers and stuff. Now, is it like, what, is there like some specific traits that, that when you talk about like, you know, quote unquote, like common sense gun control, like, all right, what, what are some of the specific things about certain firearms that you think kind of put them into a category where you would rather just not see them in private hands? Yeah. Thanks, man. Well, first of all, I appreciate you like having this conversation and much less like hosting someone that you, you probably don't agree with on everything. Um, well, Sam invited you. I, to <laughs> I was like, Casey, you're probably going to hate me for this, but uh, awesome. I want to talk to this guy. I told him about it after the, it was confirmed. So <laughs> at some point I'll, I'll invite like Sean Hannity's son on here and Sam will have to sweat it out. Well, I hope he'll invite <laughs> you back. I think that could be a, you know, a good time, but, uh, well, let, let, let me start just by saying that um, when I think of, you know, so there's there's one, one way that I would approach this as a Christian, you know, like that I find it really hard to reconcile uh, loving our enemies with preparing to kill them. And so there's, there's, there's a part of this that, that's rooted in my faith. But then there's a whole other side of this that I can talk about it as one person's rights, you know, um, and the Second Amendment. And this is where I would start, man, is when when they wrote the Second Amendment, James Madison, you know, the father of the Constitution, he said that that liberty can be endangered by the abuse of power, but liberty can also be endangered by the abuse of liberty. Um, 
that one person's right to own whatever guns they want, wherever they want them can begin to encroach on another person's right to live. And that's why they put well-regulated in it, you know? And I think even now, as we look at the evolution of guns from shooting a couple of rounds a minute at top, you know, maximum when they wrote the second amendment to where we're at now, where, where guns have such a massive capacity to do so much harm. Um, that asking questions about the capacity of magazines is a good one. You know, like I, I believe that, um, and, and, you know, zoom it out just a little bit. Think about cars, you know, cars aren't designed to kill, uh, but they can, they can be deadly. And so we've done all sorts of stuff to protect people from cars. You know, we've, uh, you have to pass a driver's test. You, um, have speed limits, we have airbags, seat belts, you know, all these things. If you abuse your right to drive a car, then your license can be revoked. Um, and even as technology changes, cell phones, we have like no texting and driving laws. So I think all of these things we've evolved and we've tried to protect people from being killed by cars. And yet guns are one of the most unevolved um, industries that's out there. So I think there's things that we could do legally that would help. Um, like I'm a, I'm a fan of what's called the one handgun a month uh, law, right? That would limit the amount of handguns one person can purchase in a year to one a month, 12 a year. And you start to go, that makes a lot of sense, right? Like who needs more than 12 handguns in one year? And I'll tell you folks that are selling them on this, on the corner, right? Like, I, like, so I think that, that things like limiting the capacity that, one person can do, you know, so much damage on, um, and th those are good places to start. Um, and, and, you know, when I'm, when I'm looking at these statistics, it's like 70%, 80% of gun owners want to see those changes. And I think what, what we're up against is a group that, you know, in my book, I call the gun extremists or the gun, the, the folks that just have no compromise on any of these things. And, you know, so I think there's a legal side. I also think that there's like technology, you know, we've, we've got, uh, I mean, there's, there's gun safes where you can use fingerprint technology. We've got, you know, ATMs and stuff where you use a fingerprint. There's no reason that we can't have a fingerprint technology on guns that would, I believe, really cut down the number of suicides. It would keep someone from stealing a gun, being able to use it as easily. So, you know, a kid in the house finds a gun, it wouldn't operate it. So I think there's, there's, it's not just legislation, but I think that the place I do begin, bro, is by going, man, we're losing a hundred lives every day to guns. That's unprecedented anywhere else in the industrialized world. Like we're not going to save every life and people that want to do evil are going to find out ways to do it without a gun. Um, and yet I think we can do better than a hundred lives a day. Um, you know, in my lifetime alone, I don't know how old you guys are, but you know, I'm 45. We've had more people killed by guns in America in my lifetime than in all of the wars in U S history combined. Um, so, you know, I, I think to, to that we can do better. I, I think we can do better than that. So, Reading your book, I had to I had to do a lot of self evaluation, which I'm not a fan of. I didn't enjoy, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, none of us. You know, there it. was there was some stuff in there that uh, you know, especially hearing some statistics and stuff. I I do agree on. Um, you know, t a couple of the things that that made a lot of sense. There's there's a lot of parallels between gun ownership and and owning and operating a car. And I think you brought up a couple of them there. You know, I, I remember in uh, in Michigan, and you have to realize, like, 
if you're not a if you're not deeply into uh, gun culture and stuff, laws vary state by state a lot. And uh, you know, like when I was in Michigan, um, any handgun sale had to have uh, a background check. It had to go. You had to go through the sheriff's department. You had to go get a purchase permit. Uh, where you left your name and all of that, you know, all your personal information. Um, you took that purchase permit to the person who was selling it. They would sell it to you. They would do. There was an exchange of ownership from you know from a, a, a legal standpoint. So there was no back and forth trading of handguns. You know, because I mean, it, when we start talking about gun violence, I mean, the the vast majority of gun violence is handguns. But I mean, hands down, over anything. I mean, assault rifles get a lot of the. Uh, a lot of the hype because, you know, mass shootings and things like that. But almost all of the statistics that you quote are, are handgun deaths. So there's some things there, like at the same time living in Michigan, like I, uh, I got really into motorcycles for a while and I was wheeling and dealing motorcycles all the time. And I remember one year I sold more than five vehicles and it almost got me in trouble because to sell more than five vehicles, you had to have like a dealer permit. And, you know, because they want to make sure that you're paying your taxes and things like that on there. Some of the things like that, um, like you said, uh, uh, you know, capping the number of handguns that you can buy and sell in a year. I don't think that's a bad idea at all. And, and you know what? If you are a gun trader or dealer or something like that, you know, maybe you should have a license and we should have some history on you. And we should, you know, if you're a, a, a felon or something, you know, maybe that's not a business that you should be in. Yeah, dude. Um See, I knew I knew that we we'd find common ground on all this. I mean, literally, I'm also living in a house that has, or I'm I'm at my mom's house, and we got guns. You know, my my uncle right right over here's got a uh, yeah, assault rifle. You know, you you got a little gun above your head. Like so, it's very it's very. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think we need better conversations like this because I do I, I really do think that we can find some common ground, and and there's pieces of this that we. Um, you know, that we kind of peel away the layers of in our book. I mean, suicide's a big part of this. Two thirds of gun deaths are suicide. And the reason a gun is, is a big deal in that is 90% of people who attempt suicide over 90%, you know, by gun end up dying um, tragically. But when you look at other methods of trying to take your own life, um, 90% of the people who try other methods survive, right? Their first suicide attempt and they don't go on to, commit suicide. And so it's, it's, I think some of this is, is about just like, man, how can we make a safer society? You know, we think of our military service members traumatized by violence, that they're taking their lives at almost one per hour. It's, it's the largest cause of death of military service members is not combat. It's suicide by their own guns. And so, you know, all of this to me comes out of, you know, a place of trying to have a little compassion and to be a little bit more responsible and some of it is we don't even know things because the, the, there are those gun extremists that have blocked us from even being able to know, for instance, wh which gun shops are the worst. Because we know that like 5% of gun shops are responsible for an overwhelming number of the crime guns. They're literally selling guns irresponsibly to straw purchasers and things like that. And if we could figure out some of the research, we could hold them accountable. You know, and I, I think some of that's just like we we need to do better and we can do better. It's not a matter of if we can, but but if we have the willpower to stand up to some of the kind of extremist rhetoric that we hear. That was yeah. that was the surprising part to me too is like when you talked about gun shops in particular. I mean you you mentioned one the shooter shop, if I remember right. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah it's right, and, it's right around the corner from me in Philly. Yeah. I got to imagine that this is a small number of stores that are doing this because every gun store or gun, you know, official gun dealer I've ever done a purchase with has been an absolute stickler about rules and regulations and stuff. And, uh, you know, I, don't, I probably shouldn't say this. I did try to make a straw purchase at one point and got turned down in uh, Flint. My, my grandpa wanted this 22 rifle and the, the store wouldn't sell to anyone from out of state. And so I was like, well, I, I want it. And they're like, nah, get lost. <laughs> nice, yeah. I mean, I, I, would, I would like to be able to uh, know, you know, like like a Yelp rating or something. Let's have like, let's let's have some reviews of the gun shops that are responsible and the ones that aren't so we can know. Uh, and, and then there's some things that are just to me, no brainers, like some folks don't even know that you're not in many places, you're not even required to report stolen guns, you know? And so it allows some like real wiggle room for gun shops to have guns that are stolen, you know, and stuff like that. So it's just like, man, some of this stuff is, is not really rocket science. We, we, Mm. we can do better. So I appreciate your, you know, openness. And I think that there are, I mean, a lot of the gun owners I'm talking to, they're really grieved by where we're at, you know? And, and, and to me, that's again, why, like I keep coming back to, to me, this is, also about proximity. You know, sometimes it's not a compassion problem, but it's a proximity problem. And until gun violence has names and faces, um, you know, some of this doesn't have quite the urgency that maybe it should for us. Um, and and that, that's my own story too. But even, you know, like, like an AR-15 or um, one of these guns, like I see it in the mass shootings, but I will never forget the night that I heard them on my block. And ran outside and we had two people that were killed. I mean, it's a wonder where there weren't more people killed. Um, but then the police began to pick up, um, look at the shots and we had 39 shots in like a, a minute. And so, you know, I, I, everywhere in the world, there are people who have mental health issues. There are people who are violent, but what's unique about our country is we're allowing almost anyone to have this, this nearly unrestricted access to, to carry out, you know, horrific crimes and evil. So, um, yeah. And so I, you know, I think we got to start by grieving the lives that are lost. So I, I live in the state of Massachusetts, which is, uh, one of the more, I don't know, as a state, we regulate probably more than others, certainly more than Kansas. Uh, and you know, for the, the people in my life, I know who are gun owners, there's a lot of I've heard frustration or just general complaining about the red tape they have to go through to get it and all these kinds of things. I don't think I never, it, that's more recent too. Cause I, I grew up in a home that would, ha, that had guns. I shot rifles when I was a kid. My dad would take us to the shooting range and I thought it was entertaining enough. Me and my brother never really gravitated towards it or found an interest in it ourselves. But um, you know, every once in a while we'd end up at a shooting range who, where you'd shoot different things. Like, uh, you know, I, I went to Montana and, you know, that was the first time I shot a varying degree of weapons into a mountainside because they're the only people who lived on this mountain. And you're just like, this is, I mean, there were, it's, it, I saw a little bit uh, more of a world that I'm not used to seeing. Um, but the, you know, in an area like Massachusetts, where it does feel like there, there is, there's more regulation. I, I'm personally not super familiar with what all the regulations are. Um, but some of the, the concerns and the complaints that you hear are, look, we want to own these guns. So we're clearly jumping through all the red tape to get them. And the people I know generally treat them properly and, and put them up properly. And uh, so they get the, the frustration then becomes, um, 
you know, there's plenty of access to, to weapons illegally. Uh, so, you know, there was, there's always that conversation of the more regulations you put on weapons, uh, given the amount that are circulating in this country and how many exist, it, like trying to have the conversation around whether or not that would solve any problems. Because, the pe- like I said, the people I know, they're not the ones going out shooting people or, or doing unsafe things with guns. So, but the ones who are the ones who might be are not might not be going through the red tape. That right. Criminals going aren't going to obey the rules right. sort of thing. So where do we go from there? I guess what's what what what's your your thoughts on that and, and that type of a response? Uh, yeah. So I, I, I think that that's the delicate dance in any policy issues is what are the guardrails that you know, you need to kind of keep cars on the road and what gets too much that you can't even drive right. And I think that's always the endless, uh, kind of thought on it, on, on most political issues. Um, and sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess where, where I would, I would say on this is, is that, um, I think we can have better guardrails on on gun guns in America, and still people have the right to have you know hunting rifles and things like that. Even I'm not even one that's that's going to say like I think we should get rid of all handguns or something like that. But I do think that having some limits is really helpful. Um, and even you know Justice Scalia, uh, who passed away in the Supreme Court, one of the most conservative justices, said. Uh, even our ruling um, in, in on on guns uh, in I think it was 2008, you know, where we really the Supreme Court made it clear mm-hmm. that the right of the Second Amendment was not just for militia groups, but for individuals. Right. But he said, you know, that that doesn't mean you should just be able to have any amount of guns and carry them wherever you want and have any type of gun that you you want like there need to be restrictions and limits on on this so i i think that you know that that's really helpful to hear from one of the most conservative supreme court justices and it but i do think it has to happen across the board because otherwise you have exactly what happens in chicago everybody goes to indiana to grab a gun you know and you can go to jersey or whatever so you can if if we don't have some kind of um comprehensive uh, gun laws, then, then it almost what's happening state to state doesn't really matter or even worse, you know, like Philadelphia passed laws that we don't want assault weapons on our streets, um, in the city of Philadelphia. And then the NRA will take those municipalities to court and challenge them and win. Right. So they'll sue the cities that pass laws that want to have some sort of like limitations on the type of weapons or whatever we have on our streets. So, yeah, I, I think that's where is exactly what we're doing right now. You know, having a, having a better conversation um, mm-hmm. on it can help, and and finding some things that we agree on. You know, and maybe it's a you know, I, I think some of the things that the Biden administration is doing uh, are good. I think we need more than that. You know, I think we need some research and access to information. We need like um, uh, folks that are profiting off of gun uh, gun sales. Uh, irresponsibly to be able to be held accountable, you know, um, like if Nerf, this is the irony, you can sue a toy gun company, but you can't sue a real gun company or, or like a gun shop, you know, that sells <laughs> guns irresponsibly. So like literally if, you know, Sam, if you oh. shot my eye out with a Nerf gun, we could sue Nerf, but uh, not so with, with real guns. And, you know, even with real distributors, you know, folks that are, um, we know that are selling guns irresponsibly gun shops, you know, I mean the, the gun shows, I went to a gun show when I was writing my book. Um, and I mean, literally had folks just lining the, the, the way in selling guns that without any ID or anything, and once you get in the gun shop, they're a little bit more, 
uh, or the gun show, you're a little bit, they're a little bit more strict about it. But even there, there was a grenade launcher, you know, and I'm talking to this woman, I'm like, this is a grenade launcher. Holy Mary, you know? And I said, what do I need to buy that? And she's like, ah, cash and ID. And she said, but the cash is the most important thing. You know, and I'm, I just think, man, and my wife's looking for a 410, you know, she's like wanting to look for a 410. And literally in this gun shop, you could not find a 410 hunting rifle. Uh, it was just filled with these, you know, assault rifles and grenade launchers and everything else. So I think that's part of the funk that we're in, right? <laughs> yeah. So you, you've mentioned a couple of times that I want to, um, uh, ex- I want you to expand on it a little bit if you can, is um, the, the, the roadblocks towards uh, research and, and learning more about uh, gun death statistics. You mentioned bad shots. Um, so I might have a slightly poor understanding or redacted understanding, but um, you know, NRA is obviously one of the biggest groups involved in trying to keep things the same or de- even deregulate more um, because they, they would profit off of it. But uh, when you mention these types of roadblocks uh, the, to studying gun deaths, I, you know, I'm, I'm aware of types of laws that have been passed that have made it um, difficult for these types of things to be studied, uh, maybe on a, a federal level, perhaps. Uh, I know there's probably some private studies, but what, um, what, what are those? Is that something you can speak to a little bit more and expand upon so people have an understanding of uh, the attempts being made to, to keep the waters muddied so that way it's more difficult to pass legislation to solve a problem you can't really know enough about? Yeah, well, it's good. I mean, we're kind of getting in the weeds a little bit, but, you know, we go into some real depth on some of these different um, and, and, and we're not trying to prescribe all the answers. I think we're trying to raise the right questions in our book, you know, and w- one of those yeah. um, is about the um, Protection of Lawful Commerce Act, which was uh, passed under George Bush that didn't allow you uh, companies that are making money off guns to be held accountable. So I think that immunity is being exploited. And that's one of one of the, the, the changes I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, but when it comes to research, I mean, you think research is a good thing on uh, almost every issue we can agree, like cancer research, you know, research on opioids, research on like car safety. It's ways that we, we just kind of keep evolving, you know, and progressing. Um, and yet, like, um, there, there have been so many restrictions on Center for Disease Control and Prevention that have not allowed it to study gun violence. And those have been very clearly passed by sort of the radical like NRA, you know, the, the and I want to say when I when I say the NRA, like it, we say this in our book that the NRA says that they have five million members. But what we also have to hear in that is is if that's true, that means ninety five percent of gun owners are not a part of the NRA. And in fact, recent studies are showing that that a majority of gun owners are finding themselves at odds with the NRA's kind of uh, you know uncompromising rhetoric. So I think that's where we go. We want research. We want to know what protects lives. Like, do would finger not finger uh, print technology help save lives from suicide and other gun deaths? You know, um, we need some data uh, that has been like forcibly uh, removed. It, it, that all data has to be destroyed. So you that this is all part of the lobbying of of some of those. Like, so you imagine like if automobile makers halted all research. You know. Um, on car safety, like, like we would, it wouldn't be good, you know? So I think that's just kind of what what I'm saying. And, um, and I think there's some really clear changes that we can make that would make research uh, more available. 
and would also allow us to trace some of those gun shops that are irresponsible and hold them uh, accountable. Um, you know, it's like 15 guns disappear every day from gun shops, 300,000 are stolen, you know, so all of this, I think we, we need to like be able to keep track of it a little bit better. I think so coming from uh, that, that camp, especially in the past and, and even still, um, I think one of the, one of the notions that, uh, that I would, that I have trouble with is, is like the slippery slope argument. So that is something that that is on a lot of gun owners' minds, and that's the motivating factor behind the resistance to a lot of changes. And I think there's some motivation there, which which I understand, and I can sympathize with. Um, we you know we get into these discussions about you know high capacity magazines and and AR-15 style rifles and all of that kind of stuff. Um, I think the 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 gun owning communities legitimate concern about passing some of these regulations um, is that slippery slope in that like we pass some sweeping gun control legislation, right? Uh, the Biden administration does some sort of executive order and all of a sudden like high capacity magazines are banned or uh, semi-automatic rifles are are banned. What, you know, the, the concern is like, well, when the next bad thing happens, then what? And I feel like that's where a lot of gun owners and even myself to some extent, like, I think that uh, there's just, I, I, boy, I'm really struggling to put words together here, but we like you said, I mean, people who are, who have a mind to do evil are a lot of times going to figure out a way to do it. And when we pass some of these regulations and give up some of the, the, the access and stuff that we have to some of these weapons and, and the, and the shootings don't stop or the violence doesn't get better, or we still get these high profile cases where, you know, I mean, just awful stuff like the Parkland shooting and stuff. Um, you know, the thought is that it's, it's not going to be enough and they're going to push further for more regulations. And, and eventually it's, I mean, like it's a slippery slope, you know, you're just going to eventually erode some of those rights that we've had for so long. Yeah, I, I, I hear that argument a lot. And I, I, I really do believe that part of this has been the the rhetoric of the gun, the people that are profiting from the absolutely unrestricted sale of guns. I mean, it was Henry Ford that said, uh, if you want to figure out how to uh, end violence and figure out who's profiting from it. And, and I don't I don't really think that um, even looking at the polls of gun owners, even the polls of NRA members that want to see changes that most people believe that if we limit handguns, if we uh, require background checks, that they're coming for the hunting rifles or, or you know, I, I don't I don't think that that's sure. what most people but, feel. But that's know? not what most of these people are concerned about. I mean, I, I don't think most of these people are 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 worried that anyone's going to come try to take their bolt action deer rifle, you know, they're concerned that the, you know, the, the, like I said, the vast majority of people I know have an AR-15 of some sort and, and they don't want to give it up. As someone from the other side and to, I guess, keep the conversation going and maybe generate some, who knows, maybe there's no real, I think the problem is that I think there's so many things that you can do that I think like Shane was saying, there's so many things you can do where we can pass it. 100% maybe everyone agrees. Even someone like me, when you, when you think about an AR-15, like my understanding, you mentioned they can be used for hunting. Um, I, my, I feel like for most people, it's like um, an enthusiast type thing. It's a hobby. It's like hobbyism. Like 
um, the, the, the fun of shooting guns. It's like, we enjoy doing this. And, you know, I, I guess it, I think one of the, the thing that like kind of goes off in my mind when I hear stuff like that is always like, I get, I've been, it's like stuck a little bit between, and I've said it, I guess before, I mean, I don't know if I've said it on the podcast, but it's stuck between like you, some people, like there's a lot of responsible, like, I'm not worried about what you're doing with your AR 15 in your backyard, Casey. It's really not a concern to me. Sure. Um, so getting kind of being stuck between that and when you look at what's going on in society and saying, this is why we can't have nice things. Uh, when you just like, at what point does someone's hobby, uh, Trump the someone's right to live when you just create such an ease of access to it. Uh, but I also hear the counterpoint of if you eliminate access to it, like they're here and they're in existence. And I mean, our, our country has, uh, you probably have the numbers to this in front of you, Shane, more guns per capita than anywhere else. So when you're thinking about it from an access perspective versus a personal responsibility and right perspective, I, I have that, that balance is a really difficult thing for me to kind of grapple with. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this is that tension between, you know, one person's liberty and another person's safety. And, you know, I, I think when we're looking at our country right now, we you mentioned the amount of guns like we've got 100. The, the newest stats I've seen are 120 guns for 100 people. So we've got more than one gun per person. And yet we have two thirds of Americans that live without guns, two thirds. And so there's a few people that have a whole lot of guns. There's 3% of our population that almost have half the guns. So, you know, average is 17 or more each. And so, you know, I think that's where we got to kind of meet, find this equilibrium where folks um, can be grieved by the gun violence and the suicide rate around our country. And I mean, a lot of the, the guns that we're transforming into garden tools right now are suicide guns. They're guns like a family that the the father snapped and, uh, you know, shot himself and shot the wife. And then the family's left with a house full of guns. And we're transforming those in, you know, and trying to grieve that with them. And so I, I think that that um, the fact that African-American children are 10 times more likely to be killed than white kids, like all of that is it's not kind of getting outside of ourselves, you know, and just going, man, like. I don't want gun violence to be the number one cause of death of our kids. Like I, 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 I don't want, you know um, I mean, you know, Casey, you may even be able to like use a grenade safely in your backyard. I frankly, I love blowing things up. And so, uh, yeah. And yet, like, I think we've got some, like, there's some places that you can't even buy fireworks but you can get guns. And I, I think that's just one of those things where we got to go, man, we, we, we just need to do a little better at protecting people than protecting guns. And there does come a point where there's a, there's a delicate dance there, you know, and, and I, I really do believe that often we've been better in, in America at protecting the right to own guns than the right to live in other people's lives that um, may not be taken by you, but you're kind of, that right, I don't mean to bust the Bible out, but I, I, you know, there's that scripture that talks about like how one person's freedom can be begin to hurt another person. And so, you, you know, we may have the right to do something. And yet there's a part of me that feels like, man, um, maybe our commitment to loving our neighbor causes us to, um, to make some sacrifices, you know, I mean, even with masks, like uh, I would rather everybody just wear a mask because it's a good idea, you know, 
but like, yeah. <laughs> like, like I think loving our neighbor means, yeah, you may have the right not to wear a mask, but like, maybe it's just a, a loving thing to do to do that. And and I think we have that same, like, we've got this wild contradiction, you know, I don't need a mask to protect me because God will protect me, but I need a gun. You know? <laughs> so I think there's got yeah. you know, there's some of that, the, that, 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 that theology and our religion plays a role in some of this. And, and I, you know, it breaks my heart that, that Christians are one of the biggest champions of guns and the death penalty uh, in our country, the highest gun-owning demographic, you know, the highest population that's in favor of the death penalty. And I would just think that our sensitivity to life, because we're worshiping a savior who is a victim of violence and, you know, dies with forgiveness on his lips, like that should do something to us. And our sensitivity to the suffering of other people should do something to us, you know, to cause us to be, to be the biggest, the the biggest uh, uh, obstacles to death and violence, rather than kind of the folks that are often on the wrong side of that. And I think there's that's there's like a, a, a fundamental disconnect between the sides of the aisle, uh, like in that regard, um, because on the one hand, you know. Like you said, I mean, we should all be invested in reducing gun violence. Gun owners should be the most invested in reducing gun violence. And and what you've said so far about, uh, you know, the the abuse of freedom is the greatest threat to that freedom. You know, if you want to keep your right to own guns, you know, you should be championing restrictions that keep them out of the hands of people who shouldn't have them or reduce the number of accidents and stuff that happen in households. But I think like uh, where a lot of people would would where you guys would where we disconnect, I guess, on things is like laying, you know, you you attribute a lot of the gun violence to guns themselves, you know, and and looking at the studies and stuff like that, you know, like two thirds of gun violence is is suicides. Um, There's a huge percentage of that pie that's left on the other side that's that's gang and drug related violence and things like that. And I, I think it's, it's really hard for, you know, I think about like my, my friends that I know from work that are big gun enthusiasts. It's really hard for them to understand the logic of, you know, guns are what's doing this to people and, and rather, and, you know, I mean, do you see, do you see what I'm, the point I'm trying to make? I'm, I'm well, struggling I, to, to bring I, it all together. I, I mean, I think a couple, a couple of, things I hear you saying one one of them is is um you know there's there's folks that say that that gun violence is not a gun problem it's a heart problem and I really believe it's both you know I think that that you can't legislate love no law is going to change someone's heart I mean we've we've already seen people like in the Boston um massacre that turned a pressure cooker into a bomb like you can I mean you can find ways to kill people to use a car as a weapon drive it into a crowd um, so, so, but there, you know, I think in particular guns are, are designed to kill and many of them are designed to do that very, uh, very efficiently. And so like when we look at mass shootings and even the profile, like this, it, it is the most acts of domestic terrorism have been done by white man, men, you know, with guns. It's one of the biggest threats to public safety, especially as we look at our country right now. And, um, and so, you know, Martin Luther King, he, he, I think, saw racism as both a heart problem and a policy problem. 
And, and he said things like, no law can make you love me, but it can make it harder for you to kill me. And I really vibe with that. You know, I think that um, that, that uh, you know, we need we needed God. We still need God to change racist hearts. Uh, but meanwhile, we also needed black folks to be able to se- swim in the same swimming pools and go in the same uh, schools and vote and, and be seen as fully human. And, you know, some of those those same pains I think we see in in the uh, around guns. And so we can't ignore the heart problem and God heals hearts. But I think sometimes we, you know, we're waiting on God to change laws and God's given us that power. So we shouldn't just, you know, offer thoughts and prayers after every mass shooting while then dodging the actions that might save lives in the future. Yeah. And there's a lot of common ground, you know, as as we've already talked about. Um, I was listening to uh, I listened to a couple episodes of Dan Carlin's show. Um, where he talked about guns and gun violence. And and both of them, the ones that I listened to were directly after mass shootings. One was after Aurora, Colorado, and the other was after Sandy Hook, you know? And so he was talking about it in regards to those those laws. And one of the things that, that uh, Dan said that I thought was a great point was, you know, he talked about changing the culture around guns and, and guns accessibility and things and, and how big of an impact that can have, which seems like an insurmountable task. But, you know, the, the, the example that he gave was drunk driving. He's, you know, he talked about like, he's like, Hey, when I was a young man, you know, drunk diving, driving was not an abhorrent, you know, sin against the, the, the rest of the, the peaceful public, like drunk driving was something that a lot of people did and you chuckle about and you met, you know, it was a it was a run of the mill thing that a lot of people did on a regular basis and through legislation, you know, punishing, really just hammering the people who abuse that freedom. We've we've not only reduced that number, but we've changed the culture around it to the point where, like, you know, nobody wants to hear that you're drunk driving. I mean, nobody thinks it's funny. Yeah, no one's gonna like you know, and a lot of people will stand in the way if you think you're gonna get in your car after you've been drinking. And I think that was a that to me, I think made a, a pretty powerful point. And I think where we need to, some of the common ground that we can go with this is like, how do we, how do we change the culture around guns, And how do we do it in a way that punishes people who abuse that freedom that we're talking about? And, you know, you brought up, uh, you had a great chapter about domestic violence in your, in your book and talked about how like the vast majority of, uh, you know, uh, domestic violence that ended in murder, there was a complaint beforehand there was some sort of interaction with cops where they were called in on a domestic violence complaint you know the the yeah there's a lot we could do there to help prevent some of those those deaths you know and if if you know if you get the cops called on you because you punched your wife i mean you should probably forfeit your gun rights for a while um i don't know i think there's some really good things that we could do there like you said i mean that to to to, to try to decrease the number of, of senseless instances of, of gun violence that really, by all accounts, we should be able to prevent. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, man. Yeah. The culture part of it, I think, is is interesting because you hear people respond every mass shooting with um, citing maybe Australia banning all their weapons as like an example of what we should do to solve the problem. And typically, I think if you can come up with a solution in five seconds and say it in five seconds, it's probably not going to work. But it's like the when you think about culture and constitution and the mentality around guns in our country, it is way different 
as far as I know, I've never really been to Australia, so I could just be totally full of it. It, it, I mean, it it is a big part. I mean, it is part of our constitution. It is just depending on how you interpret it, I guess. I know there's a lot of conversation around uh, what it means and, and even throughout, even before the, the second amendment um, we had, we had gun control legislation. We've had it through that. And up through 2008, like you said, Shane, they, they, they didn't just open it up to everybody and, and seal the deal on, on the conversation. It was, um, it's still open to discussion and regulation. Uh, and I think just, um, I think your point about culture, I think the, the culture is, um, changing culture and changing minds about what, what that, I guess what that looks like and how people should consider their freedoms versus other people's lives and things. I mean, I think that's such a, yeah. a good point. I really appreciate this conversation, Shane and Casey. Casey, this is easy, right? You were fine. It wasn't as bad as I thought. <laughs> uh, it's been great. It's been great, y'all. Yeah, I think we got to keep thinking outside the box. You know, I mean, uh, there there are countries that have made changes that uh, have worked, and there's probably changes that haven't worked. There's things like, you know, we talked about the study in Israel where soldiers uh, just stopped taking their weapons home um, and and it massively cut down the, the amount of suicides. You know, I think there's just all these things, but all of it, I think, begins by having a deeper sensitivity to life and going, you know what, let's step back from the rhetoric, from the polarizing stuff. And let's like first remember that, I mean, all the way back to Cain and Abel, when the first life was lost, a brother killed his own brother. It says that the blood cried out to God from the ground. And so this this matters to God and it and it should matter to us. You know, it should shake us that we're losing. Even in the pandemic, we lost 40,000 people to, to, you know, gun deaths. So um, start by like even just feeling like it, it, it pains us. You know, I think the same with drunk driving, probably more and more people care because more and more people knew someone personally who had been hit by a drunk driver or somebody in their family, you know? And, um, and so uh, even if gun violence hasn't personally affected us, um, maybe kind of, kind of keep trying to have a heart to realize, you know, a softened heart to realize that this is affecting so, so many people. It's, it's over 40% of Americans right now that know someone who's been shot. And so um, let's not wait till it hits us, right? Or it comes to our school or to our own family. Let's try to think about how we can save more lives um, before it becomes more personal. But thanks both did your wife for the ever, conversation. Yeah, did your, did your wife ever find a 410? You want me to keep an eye open? <laughs> <laughs> My wife is, uh, she's, she's going, she's turkey hunting uh, with her dad uh, these days. But um, no, she's good to go, I think. But I'll, I'll let her know if she needs a 410, who to call. <laughs> I've been looking for an old 16 gauge side by side. And if I find out you beat one into a shovel, I'm going to be really upset. I have to tell you, I just got a mother load of guns and I do not want to show you all of the uh, ones that uh, one of them was. uh, um, uh, Oh man. What's that? It was. um, uh, Oh, I can't remember the exact name of it, but it's one of those really, really uh, fancy ones. It starts with a B Um, anyway. But, um, and if you, you know, man, if you decide you want to, um, get rid of one of those assault rifles. I, I got, I can make you one of these shovels out of it. So yeah, <laughs> See, I'd put one of those behind me. Case you get a gun no, above no. your head and well, I'd put one of those. Shane, when you get started, this is what um, we call a very expensive, a very expensive shovel right there. If it's made out of it. <laughs> yeah. You got to start selling those on your website to uh, raise money for red letter Christians, man. That's... Yeah, dude. We can't make enough of them. We, <laughs> we, uh, 
we give one to each gun owner that gives us a gun and then we can usually make two or three more, but we're always uh, going through them because we give a lot of them, you know, away. We, we did have this guy that just won a, uh, an AR. It wasn't a 15. It was a, um, well, I can't remember. It was like a 500 series or something. It was a big AR gun that he won in a raffle. And then he just was like, I mean, this is, you know, I don't know, probably 1500, $2,000 gun. He just said, man, I, I thought it was going to be a hunting rifle. And so he gave it to us brand new in the box. So um, I think this, this is made out of that one there. So, but yeah. That hurts me a little. (laughs) (laughs) And thanks, Shane. Thanks so much for the conversation. This was a great time. We really appreciate you and your time. Well, I appreciate you. Casey's coming around. No, it was great to meet you, man. Appreciate both y'all. Let's do it again sometime. Bless you. Cool. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Yeah. We will catch you next time. 